So there's a topic that, that did occur to me, and it is that uh, I'm approaching in very short time, about 25 days or so from now, the 75th anniversary of my life on this earth. 75. I'm going to be 76, as it turns out. So I, I thought to myself, and I believe the Holy Spirit was prompting this all along, what have you learned in 75 years? Uh, and I guess we could sum it up with the sentence that not much, but nevertheless, <clears throat> 75 years it is, whether you want it or not. And I want to share with you some things I've observed during those three quarters of a century. That's hard to imagine, because I can remember back in the early November days of uh, 1989, uh, the doctor was approaching me with the possibility of having a double bypass a hard open heart surgery. And at that time, I thought back to myself, I was only 48. My father had died at age 49 after his second heart attack. And though we're no blood relation, it was kind of uh, unusual that it had happened to him so quickly in the very uh, crux of his life. I, I've always believed that when you reach age 50, you're really reaching the peak of life, of, pro of human productivity. You gain wisdom, hopefully, by the previous years you've lived. But in particular, this is what God's best equipped you to do at about age 50 on, for a while at least, until he calls you home. And my father was called home at an early age, and I was looking at the same kind of a prospect until they performed open-heart surgery. Again, I remember coming to, and remembering finally after we got out of the intensive care unit, that was the very day that the Berlin Wall came down. It was a historical event that coincided with my recovery, and I'll never forget that. So I have been granted almost 25 years more life than my father, and I'm very grateful for that. And it's very unusual because, I, I say it's unusual, because it's God who's at work within me. I'd like to call to your attention in Philippians chapter 1 for just a moment to anchor this in a scripture and he says in verse 6 of chapter 1 in Philippians, For I am confident, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in the second chapter, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is what God has done. Hopefully I can give some testimony of that for these past 75 years, short, just 25 days. The fact is, is that I got to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior when I was at age 10. And I can remember the witness of my father who at that time, uh, and this is an unusual thing for this day and age in particular, I was adopted because I was born out of wedlock to a woman who at least had the grace and mercy to give birth to me in a maternity home called the Volunteers of America in Fort Worth, Texas. The Volunteers of America made a stipulation for any applicants, couple applicants for uh, adoption of their children, that they had to be raised in a Christian home. 
Not only did they have to be raised in the Christian home, they had to give testimony with at least three other people that that had been so, that they were practicing Christians, church attenders. And so as a consequence, I had the great fortune and blessing to be raised in a Christian home. My father was a deacon, a Baptist deacon, and a lawyer, and justice of the peace in Taylor, Texas. And they helped not only a couple of other couples, they helped at least about a half dozen other couples who could not have children to be adopted to get adoption through that very same adoption agency in Fort Worth, Texas. But I had also, and I remember this so vividly, a Sunday school teacher when I was about the age of what they called a junior. Remember beginners and juniors and intermediates and then high school? Well, I can remember one particular fella. His name was Mr. Gillespie. He was our church custodian. And he could tell the most fantastic Bible stories you ever heard. He was a man who just had a great memory for that and could get you excited as a kid as you listened to him tell about the great battles of the Bible. But he also witnessed boldly about Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I realized at an early age, at age 10, that I was in need of a Savior and a scripture that spoke to me is found here in Romans 10, 9 through 11. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And God did not disappoint me. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew I was a sinner. And I needed salvation through Jesus Christ. And in my simple childlike trust, and what did Jesus say about trusting Him and believing in Him? Coming to Him as a simple child. With, with simple childlike trust, I believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so then I was born again. And I realized many years later, as I began to question whether I truly understood this, that God understood who I was and what I was. And he put me in the position to understand that what I commit to him, he was capable of guarding and entrusting. So I know that as a young man of ten years of age, a young child at ten years of age, that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. I had a, a, an awareness that there was a need then for something else. And there was a young woman who was our youth leader at the First Baptist Church of Taylor, Texas. And I tell you one thing for sure. She was absolutely devoted to the quest of having the children which she ministered to to serve the Lord in full time. And I'm putting that in quotes full-time Christian service. And so I was driven, even as a young person, with that in mind, that there was a great privilege in being able to enter into full-time Christian service. And so God began His work in me at that stage of my, of my life, and yet there was an inclination from my very early age, my early age of 14, toward a military career, and I have no explanation of that whatsoever. 
But those of you who know me, I've just got through cataloging my military history library. It numbers almost 1,200 books. It's been a collection of mine ongoing since I came to that point uh, as a teenager. That would have been about 1954. That God had a special privilege for me in serving him that way. And yet, an opportunity came my senior year in high school and my freshman year at Baylor University to become the minister of music at our church. Now, those who know me, really know me, know that what I am in what in Texas is known as semi-talented. <clears throat> now, semi-talented, it's just like Lyndon Johnson, as you remember, used to have some semi-beautiful daughters. And I'm a semi-talented musician. And as a consequence, you just never know what's going to come out whether it's going to be on key or whatever. But nevertheless, God gave me somewhat an ability to sing. And I thought as a consequence of that, since I was a minister of music at a church, my goodness, that must mean that I was going to be called to full-time Christian service as a musician. With, a first of all, a major in what we call voice and a minor in piano. I realized very quickly, early up, in my freshman year, in the first semester, that I was as talented as piano as I would be as a surgeon. But, however, <clears throat> and an untrained surgeon on top of that. So nobody would want to ever to have my, my hands involved in surgery with them. But, nevertheless, God, in His patience and mercy and grace, enabled me to understand that that was not the calling to which I had been called. And so, since I had been inclined at age 14 to go to a military career, off to the Army I went, uh, one early up in my sophomore semester, and I mean early up, about like the second day of class. I couldn't find the German class at that stage of the game, so I went down and enlisted in the Army. That's a real, it's a real alternative. But I, and I'm serious when I say that. So I entered the Army with the hopes of getting involved in Army aviation, and I realized that I was never going to do that because I had wanted to, do, to be a, a, a cadet at the Air Force Academy early up in my freshman year in high school and realized I didn't have the eyesight to pass. And the Army's requirements were no different than the Air Force Academy. So therefore, I was kind of uh, uh, obstructed in pursuing that kind of a career. But nevertheless, I did go off into the Army, served, Many years, uh, three years to be exact, which seemed at that time like many years. But nevertheless, God was in his patience was bringing me along. He was at work within me to will and to work for his good pleasure. What occurred after that is that after I was in the Army for a while, they had a prerequisite. I was recommended by a West Point executive officer in our platoon for early up in my basic training, that the best thing to do was to go off to your first permanent station before you volunteered to go to officer's candidate school. So I thought that was a wise idea. Then when I got to the first permanent station in El Paso at Fort Bliss, they told me that you could not apply for OCS until you really got to your first permanent station, wherever that would be, and that turned out to be Würzburg, Germany. So once I got to Würzburg, Germany, and this was several months later, I found out you could not apply to OCS unless you'd gone to 7th Army NCO Academy. So I went to 7th Army NCO Academy, 
and applied that would begin my application process at that point in time. And God dealt with me in a very special way. First of all, I had a fine chaplain in which he was a real mentor to me in every sense of the word. And I can remember one Sunday morning after the service was over in the chapel. He came up to me and said, we're going to have a layman's service in the next month. And I was just wondering, would you like to preach? And when he said that, God's Holy Spirit dealt with me like he had never dealt with me before. There was a, there was a reaction in my innermost being that I had never felt until that time. And God made it obvious when he did that, that he was speaking to me directly. And it was a call to the ministry, the full-time Christian ministry, if you will. And so we did that. I remember very specifically having the opportunity to first preach uh, in a chapel service on a Sunday evening. And my chaplain friend, his name was Bob Collard. Uh, he was a captain, and he told me, he said, now, the first time I had the opportunity to preach, he said, before, I was, before, I, before people were fully seated in the service, I had concluded. <clears throat> and so people were still coming in when he was preaching. He said, so I want to tell you, you need to have plenty of subject matter if you're going to preach the gospel. So I decided to preach on Ephesians chapter 4, for whatever reason, but God seemed to be speaking to me, and it lasted 45 minutes. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that to you this morning, I promise. But nevertheless, God spoke to me and confirmed to me that I had a call to the ministry. And so, once I had that understanding, I went back to Baylor in 1964 and began the process of trying to equip myself for the work of ministry. It didn't turn out very well. Some things happened very well, though. I met my wife of 52 years, and that turned out to be a blessing beyond my comprehension. But yet, the fact is that I met as a student pastor the reality of the political climate in the 1960s. If you remember, those of you who are old enough, it was a time of great racial conflict. And I was thinking, how can anyone who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ actually be so full of hate and despise because of the color of one's skin? I can remember one time, and this is the common practice, Reed and I would get up early on Saturday morning, get into our 1964 Volkswagen, which had been a gift of my mom and my aunt, and head off to Easterly, Texas, which was a travel, a journey of about 75 miles. It took us about an hour and a half, considering once you computed wind angle and Kentucky windage, I should say, lead angle, you, because it was a, such a low-powered automobile, you had to be very careful when and if you ever passed anyone. <laughs> Nevertheless, we'd get there on Sunday morning. I'd preach the Sunday morning service. And then we would go to someone's home every Sunday and enjoy fellowship with them, a dinner or lunch, and then sometimes, depending on the individual families, we'd even enjoy a nap, which was a wonderful process to enjoy in those days. I can remember. But there was one time when I was with a couple, and the man made a comment to me. And we were talking about the civil rights environment of that day. And he said, if any so-called, he used the N-word, came to my front door, he said, I would shoot him. 
And I could not believe those words coming out of a professing Christian's mouth, that he would say something that's so full of hate. And it really began to work on me. And after a year and a half, and I still to this very day, look back on that experience with fondness and sadness, because I was actually trying to minister to a congregation of about 45 people or so. And they paid me a handsome salary in those days of $60 a week. For 1964, that was an extraordinary salary to be making. You were fortunate as a student pastor if you made 25 a week. And I was making almost three times that amount. God bless me, but yet that was a stumbling block. And as a consequence, we decided to leave the ministry and go back to college at the University of Houston in Houston, Texas. One thing led to another, and it began a process of being hired in June of 1965 for a job with a company called Moore Business Forms, with whom I stayed for 30 years. But during that process, it was a stumbling block to me because I hid behind the hypocrisy of that particular individual. And, I, and that's, that was a stumbling block to me, and it has no excuse. It's, it's just absolutely sin to do what we did. Over the next few, seven years, actually, we could count the number of times we went to church on the fingers of both hands, and I'd have several fingers left over. That's how far away, and that was what I called the prodigal years. It was seven years of spiritual drought. But it came to an end in Easter Sunday of 1973. And in that particular Sunday, I'll remember it as long as I live. And, and my small group, I hope you will forgive me because I've shared this story with you before. But the Holy Spirit woke me up that Sunday as distinctly as if someone just kicked me right out of bed. He woke me up. And I began to understand, I needed to go to church. I needed to take my family to church. We lived in Katy, Texas, which was about 30 to 40 miles outside of downtown Houston. And we decided after some deliberation that we would go to the First Baptist Church. It was right smack downtown in Houston, Texas. John Bisogno was the preacher. So we got the kids ready. Actually, I got up that morning before we woke up the children and shined their shoes I guess that's kind of the military aspect of what I've gone through. But nevertheless, we shined the kids' shoes, woke them up, had breakfast, and off we went to downtown Houston, a travel of, of about uh, 40, 45 minutes. We dropped the children off at nursery. And at the time we went in, I thought, we'll sit, sit up on the balcony. And so we went. And before I could take my seat, before, just after we walked in, the choir was singing, and the Holy Spirit brought me under a conviction like never before in my life, stirring my soul to the very depths of my being. And he spoke to me that Sunday, and I realized that there was a sorrow there. I love this verse of Scripture you'll find in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I like the new, or I should say the English Standard Version translation of this. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief 
produces death. I came under a repentance according to the power of the Holy Spirit like never before. And tears were in my eyes before I could take the seat because I realized of what I had done over the previous seven years was deprive myself of the blessings of God and His Word. And so God began to speak and deal with us. And matter of fact, I can remember as we transferred shortly thereafter to Niagara Falls, New York, and part of my career with Moore, we were looking for a church home. And we finally found one at Amherst Baptist Church of Amherst, New York. And when we were there, I had lunch one day with our pastor, Curtis Porter. And he was kind enough to understand my dilemma because I told him that I had been called to the ministry, yet I had, I had just ignored that call, in essence, when I left that church at Easterly, Texas, in about 1965. As a consequence, he gave me a tape to listen to. It was by Stuart Briscoe, who at that time was a very well-renowned pastor out of uh, the Milwaukee area. And it began to deal with my heart as nothing had done in some time. And I realized that the reason that this call to the ministry had turned out so poorly was because I was in love with the call itself, whereas my first love should always be God himself. Because the great commandments say, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and with all your strength. And yet, I had loved the calling more than I loved Jesus And I tell you, when you get your love priorities out of order, weird things can begin to happen to you. And God began to deal with me in that cause as well. And he brought about an opportunity to minister. And I'll never forget having that opportunity to minister as a layman several times, not only at Amherst Baptist Church, but we first became involved with the Alliance when I was transferred to Toronto, Ontario in uh, 1978 and had an opportunity to serve the Lord as a lay pastor, if you will, or a lay preacher in that uh, congregation at the First Alliance Church of uh, Agent Court, Ontario. And yet God wasn't through with me. We transferred back after two years to Houston, Texas, for our second tour of duty, so to speak. And in that process, I can remember one Wednesday evening, Our associate pastor, a fellow by the name of Ken Harris, who I dearly love and still love to this day, came up to me and he said, Herb, I was in my prayer closet, and he said the word came to me for you. I said, well, what was that? He said, the verse of scripture that came to mind was found in Jonah. And it says, now the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And that same feeling that in my innermost being, that had occurred when I was in the army. When God spoke to me about the ministry, hit me again like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. And I knew God was confirming again to me that he had called me a second time. I began at that process to uh, actually kind of prepare myself. I even told my colleagues at Moore, my immediate superior and and his boss, that I had planned to probably leave my career with more behind and go back into uh, full-time calling. But yet, I didn't understand how God was going to deal with me. But the fact is that he did in a very merciful way. And yet, I was still full of a lot of unbelief and reluctance. 
not indifference, but reluctance, because I could not understand how it would be that I could actually financially make it as a lay pa- or as a pastor, I should say, in the, in the midst of this and get my kids into college and do all the other things that had to be done. So, as a consequence, I'm, I was weak in faith. And that scripture we see here, now except the one who's weak in faith, I was a prime example of one who was weak in faith. Faith. I can remember driving to work one morning, and my commute was about 40 minutes long, and I was at a traffic light, and I just kind of really made up my mind, say, God, I can't do this. Well, no, I can't, but he could. But I was too unbelieving to believe that at that time. And so I passed up the opportunity and ended up, as a consequence, being transferred here in this part of the country, in Glenview, Illinois, uh, and another move with more, and by the way, over those uh, 30 and a half years, I had 18 different job titles. Not that I couldn't get a job done, but they just moved me around a lot. The fact is, is that uh, God was using me all this time for a purpose. I didn't understand it. Finally, I realized, to make a long story short, and I apologize for the length of this, the fact is, is that one Sunday morning, while we were living in Downers Grove, Illinois. This is after I had concluded 30 and a half years with more, and having opportunities to pastor, or I should say preach. I got a call from one of the elders at the E-Free Church of Naperville, to which we had joined. And he had mentioned to me that there was an opportunity that was going to become available, that the E-Free Church at Naperville was going to be hiring a business manager. And he said, I think you ought to apply. And again, that same feeling in my innermost being, I say feeling for the lack of a better term, I can't describe it to you. When God's Holy Spirit speaks, you know it. And I knew it again. God was calling me back to the ministry for the third time. You see, Jonah really tried his patience, so you can imagine what I must have uh, been like to God. Nevertheless, he called me, and it was distinct. We went through that interview process. That was in, in um, November of 2002. And I wasn't 15 minutes into that process, and I knew this job was not for me. And they knew it as well. It was just not a mix or a match in any way. So as a consequence, I thought, what is God trying to tell me? It was over two years before the reality of that, of that came home to me when this church called me in December of 2004 as the minister of, of small groups and church business manager that I understood retroactively, if you will, that God had called me for a purpose. He had a purpose in me. And this is why I say that there's two verses of Scripture so relevant to this. First of all, you'll find in Romans now, Paul was speaking about the Israelites. But I believe firmly that this, this is applicable to all of us, not just Israel, but to all. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Those gifts and calling are irrevocable. They don't go away. God has a purpose. And lastly, also, you know this verse of Scripture, every one of us, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. 
and Romans 8.28. The reality of this began to finally sink into my being, especially once I got here, and I realized how God was so rich in mercy. Grace greater than my sin, one of my favorite hymns because it applies to me so much. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. You see, God is a rich God, like no other definition of rich could ever be said. No one can even begin to comprehend or quantify that richness. And further on in, in Ephesians, he tells me, For I know, or I should say, in that same thing in chapter 2, verse 4, be, For God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What an awesome scripture. But God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Grace lavished upon us. And we began to understand that that applied to me as a sinner and as a somewhat rebel, as one full of unbelief and hesitancy and reluctance, undervaluating what, undervaluating what God could do by his grace and mercy, had stepped away and had been so disobedient over a period of almost 40 years before finally the opportunity came. I like to say that in my case, God in his grace and mercy saved the best for last. Remember that verse of scripture, the very first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding feast in Cana, as you'll find in John chapter 2. He said, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best for last. I emphasize what God said to me. He had saved the best for last in my cases. Here at age 74, by the grace of God, most of you were there that Sunday last year when I was ordained to the ministry in a way that I never thought or imagined in my wildest dreams, that which God would do. It says further in Psalms 90.10, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of the strength, 80. Yet the span is but toil and trouble. They are gone, and we fly away. Reminds me of that wonderful old hymn, I'll Fly Away. How true it is. I've lived an extra 25 years, I figure, by, my, my, by the grace of God. And it is a great way in which he has blessed me beyond my comprehension. And I'd like to just say this at the end. That the blessings with which he has blessed me, a sinner in need of a Savior, which he provided for me at age 10, he gave me a salvation that endures forever. It shall never pass away. No one shall snatch me from the Father's hand. 
because the Father has given me, in my simple childlike trust at age 10, to Jesus. I am His, and He is mine. And also, He's blessed me in a worldly way in the life that uh, He's given me over these 75 years, because I have a helpmate who's been by my side that whole time for 52 years. What grace and what mercy he has for me. Furthermore, he has given me two children, a son and a daughter. And to those he's given three children, all become our believers. All my, my, my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, are believers in Jesus Christ. That doesn't make us perfect. It just provides us for salvation. And lastly, he's given me an opportunity to serve you as friends and as brothers and sisters in Christ, as an elder and a deacon in this church. So I can say with this, at the observation of three-quarter century mark, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. We'll close with that very hymn. I would invite you, if you are one who has not trusted God fully and truly, that you do that this very morning. Seventy-five years of observation, I guess, I can truly say, His grace and mercy has abounded toward me beyond anything I can even begin to stand here and describe to you. I trust that you'll find this, hopefully, a worthwhile time and my sharing. I don't like to talk about this myself unless I'm in a small, more intimate setting, but the fact is, is that God dealt with me yesterday in this whole endeavor as he'll deal with every one of you who trust him and puts faith and confidence in him and not in the ways of the world. Let's pray. Father God, your mercy is, endures forever. Your grace abounds toward us who believe. You have given us great gifts, blessed us with spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, you have lavished your grace upon us. What mercy, what grace, what peace. Thank you, Father, in the simplest of ways that we can do. Simply, we thank you for what you are for us. That you are the God of our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray if there's anyone here this morning that needs to make that decision, they will make it known. That they will come to one of us who is an elder or a deacon and entrust us with their testimony. And with their request that we might pray with them the way of salvation in him who alone is Lord and Savior. For it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.